just because we get around Talking about my generation Things ain't do look awful Talking about my generation I hope I die before I get old Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of the Southpaw Slice. I'm Ben Lewis alongside Mike McIntyre. And while the WTA season is over, the ATP has just the end of year finals left and also remaining the Fed Cup finals and Davis Cup final before we call it a 2018 in tennis. And we're pleased to be joined by our special guest. You've seen her on your television uh, for a number of years now as the host of Hockey Central. She's also covered tennis for sports. Stand. Uh, Carolyn Cameron, thank you so much uh, for doing this. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to start uh, before I guess we sort of dig into the tennis season, uh, just to get a background of what, what your experience was in tennis growing up. And uh, did you also play from a young age? Yeah, so growing up, I played just recreationally, just in the summertime because we weren't members anywhere. So yeah, when it got warm enough to play outside, I was out playing and taking lessons. My dad actually played competitively growing up in Vancouver, so he's the one who kind of got me into it. And I remember going to Rogers Cup, actually, when I was in my early teens. And that's when I kind of got hooked. And actually, my tennis teacher at the time in the summers, he was a volunteer at the Rogers Cup. And he said, oh, yeah, you should maybe volunteer. You could be a ball kid or something. So the next year, I tried out for ball crew. And long story short, that's when I just totally became obsessed with tennis because when you're on the court with the players and you're seeing it that up close, it, you just, it's easy to get hooked. And still some of my uh, closest friends I met through tennis, whether it was Rogers cup or then in the summers uh, during high school and early in, on in university, I worked at a tennis camp too. So I travel with some of those friends and we'll go to different tennis tournaments around the world as vacation. So yeah, it's, it's kind of something that's, near and dear to my heart, not just because I love it for work and get to cover it, but just because of the friendships that I've made along the way. So how many years were you a ball kid for and how tough is that role? Because we've seen some really <laughs> some really poor treatment lately, unfortunately, of ball kids by some of the uh, professional tennis players, Sissipas recently in Verdasco. And I know at the mm-hmm. next gen finals now, they're experimenting with players having to get their own towels. So uh, how many years did you do that for and, and how tough was it in that in that role? That's a good question. I think I was a ball kid on court for, I want to say maybe four years, and then you're forced into retirement at the age of 19. And then I volunteered for a few years along with my friends to be in charge of the ball kids every summer. So I've been involved with the tournament a long time because I went from one summer, um, even though I was working for Sportsnet, my first year working at Sportsnet, I still volunteered in charge of the ball kids. And then the following summer, I was doing broadcast. So it kind of works seamlessly but uh it's a tough job and it's one of the tough things too you don't think of is sure it's the conditions and it's hot out and it's long hours but you also want to try and be invisible on the court so you go from sprinting to suddenly having to stay perfectly still uh so that can be tough net that's a lot harder than standing at the back because net you're running back and forth constantly and in retrospect we were also eating hamburgers for lunch and dinner and (laughs) Yeah, we weren't uh, probably weren't treating our bodies the best, but it was kind of it. It was just it was so much fun, but it is a hard job, and you need to be able to throw and catch well, 
and run and be in good shape. I have to I have to ask you before we move on from the the ball kid aspect is was there any player at any time that was like that <laughs> one scariest I've ever seen this player nicest I've ever encountered any like horror stories of like I'm terrified of said player or like wow he was he or she was so nice Oh, totally. And everyone kind of has their stories of all my group of friends. I actually remember uh, one girl who was on ball crew with me. And this isn't necessarily a horror story of someone being rude, but warm up is actually the most fun because that's when guys are serving just right at you and you want to try and catch it uh, before it hits the back. And one girl went to go catch erotic serve and she broke her hand. (laughs) So there was that. Um, Because you'd also try and block balls with your body because because the rule is you didn't, you didn't want it to touch the back, and then it could bounce back onto the court or make a loud noise. Um, but in terms of horror stories, I remember I made a mistake. It was during a doubles match, and this goes to show how long uh, Mikhail Yushni has been on tour. But wow. I just, I guess I wasn't paying attention, but a ball was definitely going out. It was about five feet out, but I caught it before it landed out, which is clearly not good. So he got pretty upset. But then he got over it and it didn't last too long but I remember just thinking my life was over <laughs> not because he was threatening but I was just so embarrassed that I made that mistake right uh, but most of the guys are really nice and honestly um I mean everyone at work makes fun of me because I'm just I'm clearly biased and I'm a Federer fan but he was one of the nicest players um Serena was always very nice um yeah just different people were always thanking you and and being nice. And and then some people too, like Xavier Melisse, I remember he only wanted balls from a certain side. So those are things that you have to keep in mind too when you're on the court. You can tell I'm a ball crew nerd. There's a few of us though out there, like Danielle Michaud, who works for Sportsnet. She was a ball kid with That's me. That's right, yeah. Like so, it's like a cult, but it's an accepted one. I feel like we could do a whole episode just talking about ball crew culture <laughs> yeah. here if we wanted I know. to. When you made that transition then into being a journalist, and I, I think I remember the first year you were covering the Rogers Cup, it was one of my first as well. Was there mm-hmm. a, sort of a transition to being, uh, you know, going from a little starstruck? Did you have to pinch yourself a little bit when you were then being able to ask people like Roger Federer, who you kind of idolized and had, had worked on the, uh, the court with, uh, you know, from that new role? Well, it's actually funny because the first summer I covered the Rogers Cup, I was still actually volunteering with the ball kids. And, and it wasn't when I was a sportsman. It was when I was still in school and I was just doing stuff for the fan um, while I was at the tournament. So Sarah Grossman, who was working as the head of PR there, she's now the head of PR over at Sportsnet. She and I'd known her for a number of years since or before that. She just set a clear rule as I couldn't be in my volunteer uniform when I went into the media room. So I would always do a quick change in the bathroom, which is right between the ball crew room and media. So it's only doors away. So I'd quickly do a change, then go in for press conferences and then come back and then change and then go back out to the court and make sure all the kids were assigned to the right court. So that's kind of funny thinking about it uh, years later. I remember, though, in terms of being starstruck, I wasn't too starstruck by any of the players. I do remember the very first time I asked Federer a question in a press conference. And, yeah, I was kind of freaking out on the inside. You can never show it on the outside, as you two know, but I thought it was pretty cool. And another year, too, early on, it was when Federer... Federer and Sidney Crosby actually, I don't think they share a birthday, but it's a day or two apart. And Crosby was there and Federer was there and they got them both a birthday cake. And I walked in right when that was happening. And that was pretty cool because that's <laughs> nice two of the greatest ever there. So, yeah, that's a lesson for all young broadcasters. Even if you're freaking out on the inside, just don't show it.
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're listening to the Southpaw Slice. Remember, you can find us at Southpaw underscore Slice. I'm Ben Lewis alongside Mike McIntyre and our guest for this week, Carolyn Cameron. You can find her at Essen. Carolyn. Well, uh, I guess move on to uh, the season and we want to talk about the the Canadian players and we were talking about it last week with Damian Cox that this is sort of the golden age uh, of tennis in Canada and I do want to start with Milos Raonic though because I look back and two seasons ago uh, basically similar time frame he was closing out the year as number three in the world uh going toe-to-toe with andy murray reaching the semifinals of the end of year finals and murray was ranked number one at the time and it's just incredible how much can change in a couple years murray is now number 263 in the world obviously coming off a a hip surgery and roundage is number 18 and uh it I just want to know what you make of his 2018 calendar season, and, and do we view it as, as disappointing uh, given how high we've seen him reach? Yeah, it's, it's, kind of, uh, it's kind of a tricky question to answer just in the sense that I think because right now he's ranked 18th in the world, I would consider that a successful season just based on the injuries that he's had this year and also coming into the season because remember – when he landed in Australia, he admitted, which I was shocked by coming from Milo, she admitted that he wasn't in good shape to start the year. So considering where he started and what he's gone through and where he is now, I think him being ranked inside of the top 20 is a success. If you look at his entire career and where he was projected to go and who he was projected to be, in that sense, I think you could call it a disappointment. But for Milos now... And it's the interesting thing about tennis is I think, especially being an individual sport, is people, they just think, okay, why isn't he at the top now? Why isn't he at the top now? Why isn't she at the top? It it takes time, and it's also about timing. And he still just hasn't had consecutive months where he has been healthy. I mean, now he's dealing with the elbow injury. So if it's not one injury, it's another. So it's kind of the same story for Milos and I stand by it if, and it's a big if, if he can stay healthy for a few months at a time, especially around a slam, he can do well, but he just hasn't been able to at this point. It's funny how expectations sort of skyrocket here in Canada with, uh, with our mm-hmm. tennis players, considering how a few years ago there really wasn't a whole lot to talk about. And now, you know, I was reading Tom Tebbett a couple of days ago, speaking of how People are giving Denis Shapovalov a bit of a hard time questioning whether he stagnated this year after yeah. you know, coming out of the scene in 2017 with that big uh, run in Montreal. Uh, are we putting too much pressure then on the, on the young guys coming up like Dennis and, and then Felix as well? Is there, is there too much pressure on, on these kids considering they're only you know, 19, 18 years old at this point? Yes, absolutely. And I actually, I think it also is... It's, I think it's based on the fact of where we are and what we watch. Uh, because elsewhere in the world, when people talk about Shapovalov, they're not disappointed on the season he's had. He's still in the top 30. He's had a really good season, a long season. Sure, there have been some ups and downs, but he's had really good results. And even the results that haven't been good, that's, it's a learning experience. And I think, I don't, know, I don't know what it is, but it seems like in Canada, when someone's suddenly doing really well, we then just expect them to go to the very front of the line. And that's not how tennis works. And we're also seeing right now in tennis where it's gotten older. And, I mean, Dennis is one of the youngest ones. But we're looking at guys like San Varinka, say, who won his first slam in his late 20s. The, the game's changing, and we need, to, we need to lessen our expectations in terms of results. Because Dennis Shapovalov, he's getting better, and he's improved. 
And I, I still only think it's going to go up from here. And it's a long season. I, I think, too, for him at the end of last season, he said that he was feeling really homesick the second half of the year. And that was something he had to adjust to. And that's something that then this year he's been able to adjust to. So I'm not just saying this because I'm a Canadian tennis fan. I really do think we need to give some of these athletes a break. And I even go back to Jeannie Bouchard as the perfect example 2014 was four years ago. And if you look at her career, 2014 was the outlier. So is it fair to compare everything she's doing now and say, why isn't she as good as she was in 2014? I don't think so. Yeah, it's a very good comparison. And I hope that tennis fans and people in the media as well have sort of learned a lesson uh, after all the, the flack and the hard times that, that Jeannie's been putting up with these last few years. And it's kind of nice to see her end 2018 with some solid results, and we'll see where she transitions with that. Uh, I just want to take it back to sort of your, your current uh, you know, role in the media, and I know you're doing a whole lot of hockey, but how excited are you being a tennis journalist in Canada these days with all this young talent that's coming up? It must be pretty exciting to, to look to the next few years and, and all that uh, we have to look forward to. It is. It is really exciting. As you guys know, too, I think it's just the thought of when we were growing up and playing tennis, there weren't this number of Canadians going far in Grand Slams. And that, too, you have to kind of step back and think, gee, if we're complaining that someone loses in the second second ha- like second week of a major, I mean, imagine 10 years ago, if, if, if that was the case, it would be front page news. Uh, so I think I think we're really lucky. And I just think of the growth of tennis in Canada because it's a sport that I really love and I still play. I played this morning. I play a few times a week. And if you have kids watching at home and they see themselves in a sense on TV, if they see Milos or Vashik or especially now Dennis and Felix, that that's going to grow the game. And it has, I mean, enrollments up across Canada and has been since Milos made the Wimbledon final, it has been since before that. So it, it is a really good time. And we have really good young players like Dennis and Felix are so good. And even as Milo said, they're, they're, they're better at their age now than Milos was at that age. And look at what he's accomplished. So yeah, it's a, it's an awesome time to be a, a tennis fan. And, and people are talking about Canadian players everywhere in the world. Yeah. Felix Ojeale seem is the one who's kind of, it's, it's odd. It's, He's sort of doing it quietly, and he's just been yeah. steadily progressing uh, up the rankings, and he's now number 109, and, uh, you know, he's he's the youngest of the bunch. And uh, par- part of Denis Shapovalov's la- uh, rise last year, obviously, was that one enormous tournament in Montreal, getting the semifinals of a Masters 1000 and the upset over Nadal. Felix Ogiel-Aseem uh, seems to be putting up just consistent, solid results, taking it step by step, and uh, will very shortly... Uh, be inside the top 100. Um, You made a great point about Denis Shapovalov uh, just earlier that you alluded to um, uh, such a long season. uh, And he just pulled out actually of the next gen finals uh, last Mm -hmm. week due to exhaustion. We just saw the final Paris masters event come and go. And not only did Milos get hurt there, we know Rafael Nadal couldn't play. Uh, We had names like Damir Jumer pulling out, Martin Fuksovic, Matthew Ebden, all had retirements. Mm -hmm. And I just look at this season, and I've been saying it for a few years now, is it just absurdly long if we contrast it with any other sport, really? Oh, it's nuts, and especially considering it's an individual sport, right? So it's not like these guys and girls can can rely on anyone else to pick them up on any certain day. It's way too long. Now, that being said, will it change? I don't think so, because it's a moneymaker and it's a business. 
and all these places that they play and even all the exhibition tournaments that they do in between. I mean, there's just money to be had. So I I really don't think it's going to change. What has changed, though, is people trying to structure their schedule in a smarter way. And we've seen Roger Federer do that. We've seen even Novak Djokovic do that. And those guys have the luxury of doing that based on where their ranking is and how many years they have had on tour. But that's part of the game now, too, is just guys guys and girls trying to figure out, okay, what am I best at? Like Felix Auger-Aliassime, he focused on the clay court season this year because he's good there. Um, so that's kind of where the game's changing, but I, I really don't see it getting shorter. I think it's tough even just from a viewership standpoint. And let's just say, just because we're speaking about Canadians and, and us watching here in these time zones, is this second half of the year after the U.S. Open, it's hard, I think, to keep people's attention. Like if I, if you ask anyone just walking down the street or even just an average Canadian sportsman or a casual tennis fan, I don't think they would necessarily know how Felix or Dennis are doing or where Milos is or what's going on. Just because you, you kind of need those off seasons to have a break and to miss it. Uh, the slams people get excited for, obviously, and, and here even Davis Cup and Fed Cup. But, yeah, it's tough, but it's a moneymaker. So that's that. It's amazing that so many of these players are able to go on and have such lengthy careers given how hard they mm-hmm. work year in, year out without a break. And that kind of brings me to uh, sort of my, my last question for you, which is about Daniel Nestor, who finally yeah. at the age of 46 decided to hang up the racket this year. I, I wasn't <laughs> going to believe it until I saw it, but I guess it's uh, it's official now. You had the honor of being sort of co-host of that roast at, um, was it Roy Thompson Hall earlier this summer? And I have to say that totally exceeded my expectations. I thought it would just be a typically polite Canadian uh, send-off no, for him. No, they were mean. And it was it was intense. <laughs> and uh, I'm just wondering, like, were you nervous going into that hosting role? Because I wouldn't have wanted to do it. And did it exceed your expectations in terms of the final product? Yeah, it, it did. And just for background, it was guys like John Isner was the best roaster. He was just giving it to Daniel Nestor. And even Milos and Vashik were having their fun. And Novak Djokovic added some points too. Um, the thing with Daniel too, and I've known him now for a number of years, just in covering him is he's so much more comfortable in that setting. He's so much more comfortable when he's making fun of himself or just kind of making fun of each other in a friendly way. The part that really struck me was when he made his hall of fame speech. And that's when he got really choked up talking about his career, but also just talking about his family and his parents and how he got here and the support around him. He is, He's so modest, and he would prefer if no one knew who he was or what he was doing, and that just kind of speaks to the kind of athlete he was, and that's why so many guys have respect respect for him and were there that night. So, I mean, what he's done for tennis in Canada, just because, I mean, there's Milos and Jeannie who really burst onto the scene in singles and had everyone talking about Canadian tennis, but it was always, it was always Daniel Mester first. And my hope, and I think... I think it will happen. Is I think we'll see him involved in Tennis Canada and Davis Cup and maybe one day as a captain. I don't think he has interest in it quite yet, but I can't see him leaving the sport completely. I think he, he loves it too much, and that's really all he knows is, is traveling the world and, and playing tennis. But one story, actually, um, sorry, I don't want to take up too much time, but one no, story no. I remember when I, when I was a tennis camp counselor, and it was a day camp in Toronto. This had to, this is, 10 years ago or more probably he was just running laps around the track and there's tons of kids everywhere. And if that had been Sidney Crosby, 
people would have been hounding him and whispering, oh, my gosh, it's Sid the Kid, look over there. And at the time, it was, Nestor was the greatest doubles player in the world. And I remember going over to him, and he seemed kind of surprised that someone would recognize him. And I asked if he'd come speak to the campers, and he graciously did and spoke to them and then kind of just waved and then jogged away. And I just thought, in this day and age with with how we treat our our athletes like celebrities and superstars. I just thought it was so interesting that here's the greatest in the world, just casually going for a jog incognito. <laughs> yeah. Little, uh, little would they know they have a, an eight time grand slam champion just uh, running laps al- alongside yep. them. It's pretty, uh, pretty incredible to be that big, uh, a superstar on the tennis court, but so under the radar at the same time. Uh, I just want to wrap up on one note on the women's side. We, we've had a lot of great stories on the women's side, specifically uh, Rebecca Marino and her just incredible yes. resurgence uh, in, in 2018 has just been unbelievable. And she's now inside the top 200, which means, uh, she'll get uh, direct entry into qualifying for Australia. That's great. Uh, we saw good results from Bianca Andreescu lately. Uh, one name I want to touch on uh, because I know uh, alongside you, uh, she's been a friend of yours and, and made a comeback on the tour. Sharon Fitchman uh, was just at the Tevlin Challenger and, and picking up a doubles title. Uh, how happy were you to, to see her, her latest success uh, coming back this season? Yeah, I think Rebecca Marino and Sharon, it's just been so great to see. And with Sharon, yeah, I did, um, I first met her, I guess it was last April when she did color commentary and I was doing, I guess I was doing play by, or I might have been doing courtside at that point for uh, Fed Cup. So she's done a lot of broadcast stuff with me and I've hit with her and felt really bad about my own play when I hit (laughs) with her and feel very unfit. So that's the story for another day. Yeah, I'm really happy for her because she's been out of the sport for two years, and then she thought, you know what, I'm not, I'm not done with it. I want to go back. And her first few tournaments, she and her partner kept facing the same doubles pair, and they weren't, they weren't getting past them. And then in the past two weeks, she made a finals, and then yeah, here at home in Toronto, she, she won the doubles title. So I'm really happy for her and for Rebecca Marino. I was able to visit she and her family this summer to do a feature ahead of the Rogers Cup, and I think a lot of listeners right now probably know her story I mean she she burst onto the scene 2011 around the same time as as Milos Raonic and I mean she was a good player and and a lot of people on tour were talking about her and she left the sport and she since really just opened up about her struggle with mental health and everything that was going on in her life at the time and how she'd kind of come out of that and I just think what a great role model for for people to see her so openly discuss it. Cause I think that's what more people need is just uh, knowing that it's okay to talk and you should talk about how you're feeling. So yeah, for her too, I'm just really happy for her. And honestly, a nice person and good family. And I'm glad to see she's doing well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as I said, we'll have direct entry into the Australian Open uh, qualifying. And look, she's still only uh, 27 years old. Uh, so mm-hmm. plenty, plenty of time to uh, produce uh, more great results. Such a such an amazing comeback. And I, I think not just a great tennis story, I think just a fantastic Canadian sports story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Carolyn, I want to thank you uh, so much uh, for joining us and uh, giving us uh, your perspective on uh, on tennis and sharing some uh, quality uh, ball kid stories. Really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, whether you ask for them or not, you were going to get them. And guys, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing. It's great to have a Canadian tennis podcast. Hey, thanks. We really appreciate that. And we'd love to have you back on in, in 2019. Sounds good. That was Sportsnet's Carolyn Cameron. You can follow her at SN Carolyn and uh, yeah, grew up uh, 
within Tennis Canada as a ball kid and then uh, managing the ball crew. Very, very cool. And uh, you can you can tell she's uh, tennis has obviously been a big part of her life, uh, you know, for her entire life. That's a great story and, and one that, you know, current ball kids can say, hey, look, I can I can start at this level, work my way up and one day perhaps work in the, the industry at, at large as well. And uh, gosh, I have so many more ball kid stories I could I could ask. You know, about, <laughs> I'm kidding. As you said, we could, do a, we could do a full episode on the uh, on the ball kid story. And uh, as you said, it's interesting uh, this next gen finals that's happening now. Uh, I, you know, I was watching a bit this afternoon Andre Rublev and Alex Demonauer playing, and uh, you, you sort of forget about it. And I was like, wait a minute, Rublev is uh, off grabbing his own towel. Uh, so maybe that will uh, transfer over to 2019 and become a permanent thing. It's funny, I think it was Stefano Sissipas who was saying something about how he has concerns that the towel rack might not be hygienic because the other player is also putting their towels there. It was a very bizarre comment, and uh, I don't know how that's any different than having ball kids grab your sweaty oh, towel. Oh, yeah, and, and it just, like, laying all over the court sometimes. It's like, I, I don't know that there's any hygiene involved in general. Uh, so, I don't know, maybe he has a superstition about having it uh, passed to him, but uh, won't happen at the next-gen finals. I don't want to talk about the next-gen finals yet. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about uh, this final Masters 1000 of the season on the ATP side. And look, Novak Djokovic, uh, we pegged as the heavy favorite going in, and he was seemingly on cruise control for the first uh, stage of the tournament, plays a fantastic semifinal against Roger Federer that he wins, and it looked like he ran out of gas, and finally we have a younger player breaking through, Karen Kachanov, winning his first ever Masters 1000. Huge, uh, huge win over Djokovic, 7-5, 6-4 in the final. Yeah, I think for the last Masters 1000 of the year, it's great to have two players that are sort of on, you know, different ends of the spectrum. Having Djokovic, who's been so fantastic since Wimbledon and, and you know, reassume that number one position and, and, and dominating really the, the last half of the year. And then on the other side, to have the up and coming Kachanov, a glimpse in the future. It was really nice to have that contrast between the veteran and the, the up and coming guy. And, you know, no offense to the two guys that were in the Paris finals a year ago, but... I like, and I'm sure most tennis fans like to have at least two guys that are, you know, pretty substantial uh, stars when it comes to a, a big tournament like this. Yeah. And I know that's not always the case due to, as we mentioned, the lengthy season, the injuries and things like that. So it was great to have this and and perhaps not a passing of the torch because I don't think Djokovic is anywhere close to ready to pass the torch. But certainly nice to see one of those, um, you know, just beyond next gen guys now, uh, 22 year old Kachanov, have such a great moment, biggest title of his career. Um, you know, prior to the tournament, I think he had just beaten uh, top 10 players three times in his career, and he just beat four of them in this in this one week event. So I think he's serving notice that he's going to be one to keep an eye on for the upcoming season. And uh, he's a year too old for the next gen finals. And I guess he kind of proved, you know, why that why that is with his big run in Paris. Yeah, and look, he's uh, he's already knocking on the door of uh, probably the London finals for next year if he uh, delivers this way. He's uh, up to his career high, number 11. Uh, incredibly impressive tournament. And uh, I think he's a perfect 4-0 in finals, That's right. uh, which is very impressive too. And uh, three tournament wins this year. Uh, Rafael Nadal, uh, we thought we would see him uh, at the Paris Masters 1000. He showed up to the event. He practiced a couple days, had the abdominal injury, pulled out of that, and and then subsequently pulled out of the end-of-year finals. A lot of withdrawals for Rafael Nadal this year. Only played nine tournaments, but five wins. How do we evaluate his 2018? Well, it was hugely successful when you think of what he did when he was able to, when he was, when he was healthy. So, you know, as you mentioned, he played in nine events, 
Two of them, unfortunately, the first and the last of the year at the Aussie Open and the U.S. Open, he couldn't complete his, his final match. He had to retire due to injury. But if you take those out of, out of you know, the equation, he played seven events that he finished on his own terms, and he won five titles in those seven events. Yeah. And just the fact that he's able to finish the year ranked number two speaks to just how well he did when he was healthy. Uh, again, it's, it's a shame to see that injuries take, take their toll on Nadal, but it's not all that surprising. This guy, you know, is just not built to be able to withstand uh, an 11-month season the way yeah. he plays at his age with all of his injury history. It's really remarkable that at 32 years old, he's even still having this much success. I know he's five years younger than Federer, but in terms of his body and physically what he's put himself through. Yeah, maybe the mileage is uh, racked up a little further than uh, Federer. And uh, look, of course, we're seeing Federer just uh, skipping the clay court season now two years in a row. Um, I, I don't envision Rafael Nadal skipping a full portion of seasons, but uh, you wonder, especially post-US Open, I think when the season gets really tough for him, if he really, really scales it back. It's not worth it. It's just not worth it for him to keep going, to keep pushing. Look yeah. on, you know, look at Milos Raonic. I think he should have just pulled the plug after well, yeah, the U.S. Open. That. Although, <laughs> I suppose his uh, one victory over uh, Sanga actually uh, allowed him to leap into the top 20. If, uh, there you go. If that's what he wanted to and do. He, and he ends his season with a win because, unfortunately, he couldn't play his next match against Federer that we were kind of excited about and that's talked right. about last, last week. Yep. But uh, I, I think, you know, some of these guys just got to be smarter. Shut it down if you have to shut it down so that you can come out in 2019 and be fresh. You know, look at Djokovic, who was kind of struggling at the start of 2018. It took him so long to get going. Just wait until you're absolutely ready. Get healthy in that offseason and then come back and hopefully give yourself a, you know, a good chance to get going on the right foot. Yeah, and now, uh, at least for Nadal, uh, he attempted to play the ATP World Tour Finals last season. He's skipping that. Out of Paris, uh, he'll have a bit of a longer layoff, and I think he had a, an ankle cleaned up with some surgery too, so uh, he should hopefully be good to go for what would be a compelling uh, 2019 Australian Open. Jack Sock, we uh, saw, we knew it was coming, take the tumble in the rankings. Outside the top 100, just an impossible title for him to defend, really, considering the season he's had. To his credit, he did get to the quarterfinals. Nadal threw him a lifeline by withdrawing, so he got to beat Malik Jaziri instead of face Rafa. But uh, I think, you know, he, he wants to just wipe out, uh, wipe uh, wipe the slate clean on 2018 singles-wise. Doubles was terrific. Yeah, doubles. I mean, two Grand Slam, uh, you know, championships and ones that were maybe unlikely because normally, you know, the Bryan brothers will be playing together if healthy. And so the injury there to, uh, to one of them really allowed him to step in and, and have that, uh, you know, that success. So hopefully he's focusing on that. In singles, it was just an epic, epic disaster. And the fact that he was able to win consecutive matches for the first time all year long in Paris, I mean, he did better than I thought he was going to do there, especially with the pressure on his shoulders. Remarkable, though, that he went through all of 2018 up until now without being able to win more than one round. I mean, that just blows my mind. Yeah, a uh, player with that that level of talent, great serve, great hands at the net, a huge forehand. Uh, I, I think fitness is definitely going to become a bigger emphasis for him as he uh, pushes on forward. Look, we have one big main event still remaining on the ATP side, and it is the World Tour Finals. And I'll just run down quickly the eight names that we do have there. Uh, Novak Djokovic. Roger Federer, of course, Kevin Anderson, Dominic Team, Alexander Zverev, Marin Cilic, uh, John Isner getting a spot because Rafael Nadal pulling out and uh, Kei Nishikori is there as well. Uh, interesting mix. I just want to run off the groupings. We have Zverev, Cilic, Djokovic, Isner in the first grouping. 
uh, the second grouping as team Nishikori, Anderson, Federer. That's a pretty stacked grouping with Djokovic, Chilich, and Zverev there, and then Isner with a huge serve. That could be interesting. Yeah, Federer fans are going to be happy that he's on the uh, the other side of that one. I think so, I think so. And, uh, I mean, who knows what to expect. i got to say, I'm pretty happy to see John Isner make it in there, and I know he's got a lot of detractors and a lot of people that, you know, grumble about whether it's his big serve or his political affiliations or all, sure. all kinds of things. He had a heck of a season, and I know he's there because Nadal couldn't be, but he kind of, you know, he really does, in my mind, really deserve to be that next guy in based on his results. Yeah. And at the age of, of 33 to have such a career season, I mean, the old guys are still doing it. Yeah, and look at, uh, sorry to cut you off, no, look at the, the top 10, 7 of 10 are over 30. I was just going to say the same thing. Eh? Only three guys under 30 in the top 10, and one of them is Nishikori, who's 28. I mean, we can almost round that up, right? Yeah. And then if you look, it's interesting to me, if you look at, you know, between 11 and 20, you've got uh, nine of those players who are under the age of 30. And that's the group that I think we really are going to be keeping an eye on in the coming season, which of those players is going to be ready to make their mark, jump into the top 10, and hopefully start pushing these guys at the Grand Slams a little bit harder than we've seen for the last, oh, what, 15 years? Yeah, well, look, uh, we, we've we've talked at length about Zverev's struggle on the Grand Slam stage, but as you said, it, once you go to that 11 to 20 range, some really interesting names now with Kachanov playing so well, obviously. Borna Chorich is right there at number 12, and he's headed to the uh, London Tour Finals. He's there right now as an alternate, actually. Uh, of course, Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, who's playing the next-gen finals right now, uh, is is 15th in the world, and Daniel Medvedev had you know uh, an excellent fall season he's number 16 so it's definitely an interesting mix of players and you wonder uh will these guys really really start pushing them uh we'll see what happens at the Australian Open but obviously see what happens at the London World Tour Finals as well and I gotta ask you you know before we move over to the the women's side here and wrap things up what, what do you make of the next-gen finals? Is this something you can get behind? Is this something that interests you, and especially with the variations and the different sort of changes that they're doing to try and attract maybe a younger group of, of fans to the sport? I think the problem it's having right now, uh, at least for me this year, is we don't have the same eye-catching names that we did last year. Uh, a few of these names I think a lot of people don't quite know. Andre Rublev and Alex Diemenauer I watched today was an interesting match. Diemenauer is this fantastic young player just flies around the court. He's exciting. Uh, Taylor Fritz, people know him as this big serving young American. Francis Tiafo and Tsitsipas are there. Uh, and then you step outside of those four names, and it's a very different story. Things were pretty interesting with Denis Shapovalov in the mix last year. And look, it's it's certainly a niche product. You know, the best of five, first to four element, the no deuce. Um I believe there's no lets either. All of it is sort of, you know, a mix of, I guess, uh, compelling and bizarre at the same time. Um, and I don't know that it's fully caught on, say, say to the level that Labor Cup has caught on. I think Labor Cup is is terrific already two years in. Next-gen finals maybe has some work to do. Yeah, and even looking at the court in the next-gen finals without the doubles alley there, it's just, like you said, compelling, but yet... Um, bizarre. <laughs> yet bizarre when you even just look at the, the court. Uh, it's disappointing, you know, for me that there's no Canadians there, and, and Dennis, obviously, the season took its toll on him. He just didn't have anything left in the tank. I wonder if next year when we're talking about this event, if we could see not just one, but perhaps two Canadians in the next-gen finals. And, and I think that would definitely capture my attention a little bit more, yeah. just being a Canadian uh, you know, fan. Yeah, and certainly, uh, look, I, I think it's an event, uh, given the players there, not that Felix Sojali as would go and win right now, but I, I certainly think 
if you were there right now, there's all those players you could certainly hang with and compete with. Uh, so I, I expect we'll see him there next year. Of course, he's just over the age of 18. You're listening to the South Buff. Southpaw Slice. Find us at Southpaw underscore Slice. Find me at Ben Lewis SN590 and find Mike McIntyre at Pro Tennis Fan. I guess we should wrap up with the women's side. All that we have left uh, is going to be the Fed Cup Finals, but we had a couple events last week and uh, a nice win from Ashley Barty, who's really had, I don't want to say an under-the-radar season, but she's been one of the best players uh, of 2018 outside of maybe your Grand Slam winners. Yeah, we talk about the parody. I mean, we speak about that all the time because that's that's the word that I think of when I think about women's tennis. And Ashley Barty is is definitely someone who's uh, what just outside of the top ten, I believe, and and someone that that I would say, you know, if we're looking at who we might look at for the top eight for the the women's final uh, event next year, yeah, I would not be surprised if Ashley Barty was was in that in that mix. She's got such a, a big game and, and obviously finishing the season on, on a high note here. She's someone I could see uh, having a run next year and, and being included in that, that top group of women. Yeah, certainly. So uh, a great title and uh, an impressive uh, win over uh, Julia Gerges in three sets in the semis. Gerges was having a great uh, end of year picking up a title the previous week and beating beating Jeannie Bouchard in a tight match. Uh, let's talk about the Tevlin Challenger because you had the experience at the Aviva Center seeing some of these players up close. Of course, Bianca Andreescu was maybe the most watched players uh, player there. Didn't win the event, but uh, look, I thought she uh, looks good from the uh, the minimal highlight. I, I was able to consume at least. Yeah, and for those fans that got to go and attend the event, uh, it's really cool because it, it is obviously a smaller tournament. It's a, a $60,000 purse overall split between all the competitors. It's held at the Aviva Center, but it's indoors, and there isn't that much seating for fans, and that's okay because there, i got to be honest, there aren't that many fans that go. It's kind of your hardcore Toronto tennis fans. Yeah. But it is great tennis, and to catch someone like Bianca, who's now back inside the top 200, I'd say she'd probably be top 100 if it weren't for uh, the injury sustained this year. She had four tournaments that she had to retire from, uh, trouble with the back post-US Open. But she's gone on a nice run this fall. She uh, won a challenger event in uh, Florence, uh, South Carolina. She made the semis in Saguenay where she had to withdraw with injury. She just made the semis at the Tevlin here in Toronto. And there's so much promise and so much to look forward to. I mean, she showed some inexperience in that semifinal loss this past week, just in terms of letting the match slip away from her as she was up a set and a break and couldn't sort of close it out. But uh, she's right back at it uh, this week, playing at another uh, ITF event in Kansas. Doesn't have to play these events, but she's hungry. You know, I was speaking with her mom after this one, wondering if she was going to call it a season, give the back some rest. And her mom said, you know what? She wants to get going. She's disappointed by the loss here. She wants to get back out there and, and finish with a, with a win. And, and that's always nice to see as well. But with the injury concerns, um, you know, when you're 18, you think you can just keep going and play through it all. Yeah. Got to be careful, even at her young age, just the fact that she has had so many sort of um, injury blips throughout the, the season. A couple other things that uh, this ITF event in, in Toronto really uh, presented on, uh, you know, for fans and for myself covering it from the media perspective, you can get right up close. It's absolutely free, no charge for fans that want to check it out. And as like one or two of the only media members who are there, the players come off the court and, and you don't have to chase them or, or ask them for an interview. They come to you because they want to see like the pictures you took. They're excited to get some coverage and tell their story. Yeah. Uh, a couple of players I talked to who are in sort of the 500 to 600 in the world rankings, uh, Nadja Gilchrist of the U.S. and Kennedy Schaefer 
also an American, and just stories of perseverance. Like Gilchrist is 28 years old, had to take two years away from the sport due to injuries, wasn't sure if she was going to go back to school or keep going and decided, hey, I'm going to give it another kick at the can. Just the love of the sport. Kennedy Schaefer, a little bit younger, 21 years old, just wrapped up her NCAA career. She's given it now a real go as a, as a professional. And, and again, just sharing some of the stories and the, the trials, the tribulations, the challenges, the, uh, the difficulties, the financial difficulties of, yeah. of having to do it. You know, in Kennedy Schaefer's case, doesn't have like family money that can help put her through it. So it's week to week. She doesn't even know if she can afford to go to the next event. So the stories really bring it down to um, a love of the game. And that's what keeps them going and, and chasing the dream of, of wanting to crack, a, you know, the top 100, 200 in the world and make a real go of it. And so I just really appreciated kind of getting to know some of these players on a more personal level, level sorry, and hear these stories. And it's, um, it's not what we see at the bigger events, right? And it's, uh, it'll be interesting to see how many of these players. And the Tevlin has had some good, uh, good champions in the past, Jeannie Bouchard, uh, Sabine Lasicki, yeah. uh, Camila Georgi. I mean, these are names that have made it. Yep. And it'll be cool to see how many of these players, you know, that were here this year end up doing the same. Yeah, do your best to uh, to track their careers. It's such a tough career uh, when you fully commit uh, yourself to it because obviously things like injuries can so easily get in the way and it's so results oriented it's not like you know you've made it to the uh you know mlb you have yourself a contract it is results oriented but you have the contract tennis is week to week you have to win a match or two or three to really earn your keep and keep going yeah there's absolutely no security in it no uh, it's it's all up to you as as you mentioned and um just just the grind right the grind of being 11 months of the year any other sport team sports like you said if you're you know one of the top 600 or 700 athletes you're making big bucks yeah you know and if you play it smart you could be at least set for the next part of your life in tennis nothing's guaranteed no no you can uh, imagine sort of the difference in salary between someone ranked uh, number 250 and number 50 it's just uh, drastic uh, we'll wrap on that note and uh, see what transpires uh, we have the next gen finals happening right now and then uh, we'll be following closely the end of year atp world tour finals next week mike uh, thank you as always and it was great to have our guest on carolyn cameron of sportsnet thanks for listening this has been the south boss slice